All right. Well, we have a lot to cover. Bye, kids. Bye. Good to see you. It's you. We have a lot to cover, so I encourage you to grab your worship guide, and there's some notes back there, some blanks to fill out, uh, because I've got three points with some, like, three sub-points in most of them, and, and we got a lot to do, so we're going we're gonna to hit the ground rolling. I really could have done a, probably a whole series on this one core value, um, but I'm going to give brevity on all of these things, at least attempt to. You know us preachers like to go short, right? Amen. So uh, here we go. Uh, in England, there is a really famous uh, cemetery. Um, and in this famous cemetery, uh, where lots of important people and royal people are, are buried, uh, there is one particular uh, graveside, gravesite, um, where there is this giant marble slab. All right. So it, it almost looks like a, a miniature tomb for this one person. And on top of this giant marble slab, there is this giant, you know, statue of the guy uh, who thought he was so important. He needed this giant monument to himself where he's buried. And so, so that thing is like, is there a giant marble slab, giant statue on top of it. And if you go there today, you will find a massive oak tree right in the middle, grown right up through this slab and uh, knocked the statue over and grew up through it. This happened because when this guy was buried, an acorn fell into the hole. And over years and years, as water seeped down into the dirt and touched the acorn, it began to sprout and it began to grow. And it eventually grew and it hit this marble slab. And it just continued to push on it and push on it until it broke all the way through this massive marble slab and grew this giant oak tree in the middle of it. You see, when you have the right soil and when you have a strong root system, there are few things that will actually prevent growth. You see, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. Healthy things grow, and they will even grow past and around and through obstacles. The, the way we must grow as a church is by being rooted in the soil of the gospel. Many of you will remember the parable of the sower that Jesus told. And, and when he told that, that parable, he talked about this guy, and he goes and he, he's throwing seeds out. And those seeds would, would land on the rocky soil and in, on, on the path and, and in the thorns. And, and some of it landed in the good soil. And he talked about how all of the, those seeds that landed in these kind of bad soils, they, they grew, right? They, they grew up quickly, and there, and, and there was life there. But quickly they were choked out by the thorns or scorched by the sun. Or for some reason they did not prosper and they died. They did not grow deep roots except for in the good soil where they were able to grow roots. And they grew. And not only did they grow, but they produced fruit. The soil that we grow our church in matters. For example, we could try to grow a church through the soil of entertainment we could have the biggest show in town with the lights and all the things, and, and it could be really big and really awesome. And it could be, it could, you know, life could get really busy here. We could get a lot of people. We could get a lot going on. But when life got busy, when things got hard, when our show was no longer the best show in town anymore, people would leave. See, if we want to grow our church the right way, 
the only way that actually produces genuine growth, growth that is deep and wide. Y'all remember that song? Deep and wide. Okay. It's not really what the song's about, but it still works. So we want to grow our church deep and wide, meaning more people are converted wide, want to grow wide, who also want to grow deep, that people are growing in, in maturity in Christ. They're growing in their walk with Christ. And the only way that we grow both of those directions is when we are rooted in the gospel. That is why this is our first core value. Core values meaning to keep us on track, to keep us in line, to keep us headed in the right direction. Because it is our starting place being rooted in the gospel. Because the only soil that can produce a healthy church that grows deep and wide is a church that makes Jesus essential by being rooted in the gospel. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you three ways that being rooted in the gospel creates the right kind of growth and sends our church in the right direction. Now remember, the gospel, we talked about this last week, doesn't mean, that word doesn't mean just truth. It doesn't just mean the Bible. The gospel is a specific message of an historical event. It is good news of what Jesus has done on the cross and his resurrection for us. This gospel message says that we are so sinful that Christ had to die, so loved that he was glad to. In this message, it is one of grace and mercy in Christ. That we rightly deserve hell and his judgment and injustice, but instead we receive mercy. The gospel is this message that God is setting the whole world right again. And so what are the three ways that being rooted in the gospel message can cause us to be a healthy church that grows deep and wide? Rooted in the gospel. My parents' house growing up uh, was in the middle of the woods. And whenever a big storm would come, we would see trees out back, you know, particularly pine trees, and, and you know, they're just swaying. And we're watching out the window like, man, I really hope that one falls that way. But we would watch these trees bend so far, farther than you think they could bend, but never break, never fall. Why didn't they fall? They didn't fall because they had these good, deep root systems holding them up. Roots provide the foundation the support a tree needs so that they're not knocked over when strong winds come. We are much the same way. We must be rooted in the gospel. When we are rooted in the gospel, the gospel becomes our foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.11 Paul writes that to a Corinthian church who is receiving threats, internal, not outside threats, threats from inside of the church that are seeking to destroy it unintentionally. They had all kinds of bad things going on. And Paul needed to remind them that Jesus and his gospel were the only foundation that they could be built upon. And if they tried to build a foundation on anything else, on any other person, or any other personality, anything else, that it would result in their ruin. So I want to show you three practical reasons why it is important that our foundation is the gospel, that being rooted in the gospel, being our foundation is important. Three practical reasons. The first, we remain steady when the culture tries to change us. We remain steady when the culture tries to change us. Just as culture is always changing like a pendulum going back and forth, back and forth. With each generation, 
uh, kind of contributing or changing or adding to the direction of the culture. So too has the church been pulled and moved and changed by the ever-changing cultural winds. Like it's easy right now to look at the culture trying to pull the church in different directions. And it's easy for us to think that this is a new thing, that the church is under some new attack. But you can go back to the early church in the book of Acts and even see how cultural change was trying to persuade the church before it hardly even began. But I want to give you a couple historical examples. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, the world was just coming out of the Enlightenment, where reason and science had become supreme. And because of that, thinkers and theologians in Germany, particularly, began to argue that modern people, 1800, modern people, should not believe in the miracles of the Bible the virgin birth, the healings, resurrections, that they, could, they couldn't be literal. They couldn't actually be historical. They had to just be allegories representing some other truth. They thought that the modern science of the 1800s could not account for miracles, and so therefore they should not believe them. And that truth, that, that our argument, that idea so permeated the church that the church began to drift leftward and many people began to deny realities of the resurrection and and the truths that we hold dear today from 1700 to now. That there was even a denomination that broke off from the Southern Baptist Convention who still denies that the resurrection was historical. It was only 27 years ago. That's within my lifetime, in your lifetime. That the Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky fired the last professor who didn't believe in the Bible. A, a professor at a Bible college who didn't believe in the Bible. He didn't think it was God's inerrant word. They had witches, literal Wiccans, as professors at Southern Seminary 30 years ago. All of this stemming back from an idea, an argument that modern people surely can't believe in miracles. We also have seen where churches who have moved in this leftward direction to exclusively care about uh, issues of social justice. Now, let me be clear. The church should care about issues of social justice, but not to the abandonment of the gospel, which is the central message that changes social justice issues. And so they become such advocates for social change that they've abandoned the gospel that can change anything. But not only has the church drifted left, it's drifted right. We can drift into fundamentalism, into legalism. There are churches who have made it their issue that women, by God, cannot wear pants. And women got to keep their hair up or keep it long or something. I can't keep up. And that churches that have moved into this area of, we've got, it's got to look like it's 1970 in here for some reason. And everything's got to, uh, you know, women got to do this and we can't do that. And we got to wear our best clothes and yada, yada, yada. Or you drift further, right? And you become Amish and just reject everything in the world. And really you just get like stuck in 18 something. In both of these drifts, left and right, the gospel is perverted and distorted from what it should be. 
today there are the same new threats to the gospel. That cultural winds want to change our understanding of Christianity. They accuse us of being on the wrong side of history, of being outdated, of reading the Bible wrongly. Today, the cultural winds uh, pulling us left would say to us that, we, that things that we would say are clearly sin, that we must call them good. They want us to not just be okay with sin, but to celebrate it. And they will continually call us bigots for being out of touch when we don't give in. No matter how much we try to love and care for and welcome those who may be struggling with things we call sin, as I struggle with sin, they want us to celebrate it. The culture also wants to pull us to the right and to adopt a Christian nationalism, a a Christianity that is so intertwined with American conservative politics that they become one and the same. That there's no distinguishing between being a conservative Republican and being a Christian. These cultural winds and others will seek to lead us in both directions away from the core truths of the gospel. So we must be diligent, planting ourselves, rooting ourselves firmly in the foundation of the gospel. So that the ever-changing, whatever the next thing happens in 10, 20 years, we are not pulled in those directions either, but we are firmly planted in what has been true for 2,000 years and is not changing as culture changes. Two, when the gospel is our foundation, we rightly understand how to balance grace and law. But just like before, there are two pitfalls that we can often fall into uh, when we do not understand or apply the gospel in the right way. Two traps. We can overemphasize grace and we can overemphasize the law. You see, on the one hand, when we overemphasize grace, we might end up promoting what is often called antinomianism. It's a big word, word, for the, word for the week, which means there's no law. It means you just live however you want, do whatever you want. You have a license to sin. Because there's so much grace. You just go do whatever you want to do. When we overemphasize grace, we might push people to think that they can and should live however they want because they have this get out of hell free card. And they can just live like the devil and it's all going to work out in the end. It is a culture, it creates this culture that doesn't take sin seriously at all. It is the reason a recent survey from Pew Research found that 50% 50 of Christians, evangelical Christians, believe it is okay to have casual sex outside of marriage. 50%. That should stagger us. Churches have grown afraid to talk about sin, to talk about striving to be holy and righteous. uh, We're afraid to call people to repentance. We're so afraid of offending people. We only talk about grace and forgiveness and never call people to change. But do you remember what Jesus did when he saw the woman caught in adultery? All these religious guys are ready to stone her, ready to throw rocks at her until she's dead because she has been caught committing adultery. And Jesus says, you who with no sin cast the first stone. Now Jesus is the only guy who could actually righteously throw that stone at her. And he looks at her and he says, they've all left. They haven't condemned you, neither do I condemn you. But that's not the last thing he says. He says, I don't condemn you for your sin, but go and sin no more. 
He gives radical grace and forgiveness and then calls her to life change. Being rooted in the gospel reminds us that while grace is ours, forgiveness is ours in Christ, that he, he can lavish tons of mercy on us, an unlimited amount of grace on us, that coming to Christ requires repentance, requires a turning from our sin. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, should I continue in sin that grace may abound? He asked that question of the audience. Should I continue sinning so that grace could be more, there could be more grace, and God will get more glory for having more grace for me because I got more sin to be covered? And he says, by no means. We've died to sin. How can we still live in it? You see, true followers of Jesus are always going to continue sinning. Ain't no one in this room stop sinning. We're going to sin till the day we die. We will all fall. We will all be in constant need of grace and forgiveness, which is why we need to be rooted in the gospel. But we are no longer slaves to sin. We do not celebrate sin. We do not justify why it's okay for us today. We run from it. We seek to become like Jesus because we know that joy is found not in our sin, but in the way God designed the world and following in his righteousness. But you see, while there is a danger in overemphasizing grace, there's also a danger in overemphasizing the law on the other side. Fundamentalism or legalism are those who think themselves so holy, so righteous, that they look down their nose and scorn at those who are struggling in sin patterns. And when we overemphasize being holy, overemphasize being righteous, we become like those men who are holding the stones. We become like those men ready to put a woman to death for sinning, for falling short, for making a mistake. See, legalism focuses our attention on our own works and ability to be good and holy. Legalism is what the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son does when he hates his younger brother for his misdeeds, and he thinks that his father should love him best because he says, I have always obeyed you, Dad. How could you love that heathen of a little brother of mine? I have always done what's right. You should love me. But Jesus gives us a word of warning, right? Remember and when he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, will, many will say to me, Lord, did we not, did we not? See, the focus is on me and what I did. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We must not become uptight, legalistic, holy jerks who look down on those who struggle with sins we don't struggle with, who struggle with sins that are more public than ours, who struggle with things we don't understand. We must not look down our nose at them. And the only way to, to, for us to stay on this knife edge and not fall to either side of this problem of overemphasizing grace or the law, of becoming a, given a license to sin or becoming a legalistic jerk, only way we don't fall in these traps is by being rooted in the gospel as our foundation. Because the gospel reminds us that sin is serious. Sin is so serious that the Son of God had to be put to death and the wrath of God poured out on him for it. 
And so we must not be flippant about it. We must not live in sin so as to mock the cross of Christ. But the gospel also reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that no one is saved by their good works. That your works are but filthy rags before God. We are saved by grace and grace alone. Nothing of our own doing. It is a gift of God's grace. The gospel keeps us on that knife edge. Never falling into license to sin and never falling into legalism. It brings balance. Enabling us to live holy lives while also loving and caring for those who are struggling in particular sin. It allows for grace and it allows for repentance. The gospel helps us to rightly understand the balance between grace and law. Third, when the gospel is our foundation, we can have unity across dividing lines. Today, unity almost seems like an impossible thing. We seem like we are more divided than ever. And we expect things like politics to divide people. But who in the world saw it coming that how we think about and respond to a virus would divide people? Who saw it coming that what you think about a piece of cloth over your face would divide people? The question for us in the church is, can we have unity? It's easy to have unity, let's say in politics, when you just hang out with everybody on your side of the aisle, right? It's easy to have unity when you're just around the people that agree with you. But how can you have a church that has unity when we have people from every walk of life? People from every race and every economic status, every kind of background, every kind of uh, different upbringing, every political position. How can we have unity when we are such a melting pot of different people? Is the only way that we can have unity is that we, we got to have a, rep, a Republican service and a Democrat service? Is the only way we can have unity is, is we get all the white people in one service and all the black people in another service? Is the only way we can have unity is if we get all the people who agree on every issue in one service and send everybody who agrees on those things down to a different church? Is that the only way we can have unity? You see, we can have unity in the church because unity is not about agreeing on every issue. It is about agreeing on the most important issues. You see, we can have unity because we all agree that no matter our disagreements, we all come in the same boat as sinners deserving the justice of God. We can have unity because we all come receiving the same grace lavished upon us in mercy. We can have unity because we all come bowing our knees to the same king and pledging our lives to service to the same king. We can have unity because we all come with the same starting place, saying this book is the source of our truth. It is our starting place. We can have unity because we all come with the same mission, the same desire to see the world set right through the gospel and people made new through the gospel. We have the same mission. Everything else is up for debate. Everything else we come with an open hand. These other things are closed hand. It ain't up for debate whether or not Jesus raised from the dead. That one's closed. Case closed. All these other things? I can be convinced otherwise. I can, my mind can be changed. We can have friendly conversations about. Everything else is an opinion. Everything else is a perspective. The gospel creates a new family. The gospel, when we believe it, creates a new family. So it doesn't matter 
If, if, you, if, if, we, uh, if someone comes in here who is Middle Eastern with a funny hat and a funny accent, or if someone comes in here who is a flaming liberal, or if someone comes in here who is a staunch conservative, or if someone comes in here who is an ex-prostitute or a current prostitute, or if someone comes in here as a multi-million dollar CEO, if they are in Christ, they are no longer defined by those things. They are defined by they are my brother or sister because we're both in Christ. Our family has been stitched together by blood that was poured out on a cross 2,000 years ago. We are family that is for eternity. We will be family forever. And when you are united by the gospel and around the gospel and rooted in the gospel, when the gospel is what unites us, all these other trivial sidebar issues, we never let them break up our family. We can talk about them. We can argue about them. We can be passionate and opinionate about them. But at the end of the day, we hug and go home family. The gospel is the only thing that can unite people across dividing lines. Fellowship Baptist Church must be and remain rooted in the gospel. Because when we are, the gospel will always be our foundation. When the gospel is our foundation, we will be steady and not blown about by the winds of cultural change. We will be, we will be able to rightly navigate this tension between grace and the law. Grace and trying to be holy. And we can be unified. Being, being rooted in the gospel is our only hope for those things. It gives us a secure foundation. But also, the gospel is our fuel. The gospel is our fuel. The gospel is not the runway. It's not just the beginning. It's not like, oh, yeah, the gospel is like for baby Christians. That's not the case. The gospel is the jet fuel that we need to empower us and fuel us every day of our lives. So three ways I want to show you real quickly that the gospel is our fuel. First, the gospel fuels conversion. The gospel is the only thing that saves and changes lives. There hear what I'm trying to say in this. There is not a program. There is not an event. There is not a retreat or a church camp that could ever save anyone. There is not a clever sermon series. There is no practical advice. There is no amount of counseling. There are not enough heartwarming, goosebump telling stories. There are not enough cool lights and great music and stage effects. And there is certainly not enough great preaching that could ever save you. If we want to see people saved, if we want our water bill to go through the roof because we keep having to fill this giant tank up with people converted, it will only be through the gospel. The gospel as the power of God unto salvation. And so the gospel fuels conversion. Two, the gospel fuels growth. And what I have in mind here is spiritual, personal growth. Christian maturity, not numerical growth. If you want to grow in your walk with Jesus, if you want to grow in spiritual maturity, that, that happens not by finding some other things out there. It happens by digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the riches of the gospel. Sometimes I think we, I think we, we, think we can kind of force people or trick people or guilt people or shame people into doing spiritual things. Like growing up, we played a lot of sports, football, wrestling, baseball, basketball is terrible. I quit. Too short. Soccer, my feet can't do that. Can't, not the feet. We played hand sports. And, and, and my sisters played softball, and they got good at softball, and, and, and they started playing travel ball, which meant they were gone a lot. 
And on Sunday mornings, they wouldn't be at church, and I'd be at church, and they would be gone for a week or two or three weeks. And when they would come back, the way my youth leaders thought it best to to get through to them that they need to be in church was they'd say, hey, my name is Brian. Nice to meet you. Who are you? Haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? And they would want to guilt them and shame them for not being there, thinking that if they guilted them enough, then they'd show up and not go to their softball tournament. It did not have the desired effect. We think we can guilt people and shame people into reading their Bibles or sharing the gospel or living for Jesus. And while guilt surely is a motivator, it's a bad one because it only works sometimes and when it does, it only works for a little while. Guilt can cause you to read your Bible. It can cause you to ask for forgiveness. It can, it can lead someone to share the gospel with a friend, but it leaves them unchanged. Guilt and shame leave people's outward actions doing some good things for a short time, but it never changes the heart. And it's never done out of joy. So I believe with all of my heart that the way to help others grow, the way to help yourself grow is not through guilt or beating people down. It is by pointing them again and again and again to the wonder and awe and amazement and supremacy of a God who, despite how broken they were, would send his son to die for them and would love them continually, even when they miss church for softball game. Do you know what motivates people to repent of sin? to read their Bible, to pray, to share the gospel. It is not guilt, but seeing the kindness and love of God, not as this abstract uh, concept up in the clouds, but seeing it personally applied to me in my life. The gospel fuels growth, not guilt. Three, the gospel fuels gospel culture. It is not enough for us to have right doctrine. We must have the right culture. We must have a gospel culture. What does gospel culture look like? It means that when you come to church or you are around your brothers and sisters in Christ, we do not just hear the gospel preached. That was pretty good, right? I'm just kidding. We do not just hear the gospel preached. We do not just hear the gospel taught. We do not just hear the gospel sung, but we experience the gospel and the relationships and the tone and the body language and the culture of those in church with us. If people only hear the gospel, they will not believe it. But if in hearing it, they also experience it in the people around them, then they might be shaken to the core because there is nothing else like it in the world. Romans 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Guys, I want you to think about this with me for a minute. How has Christ welcomed you? Did he do it out of obligation? Did Christ welcome you out of mere duty? Did Jesus welcome you out of mere niceness? Does he just tolerate you? No. Jesus embraces you as a friend, as a brother, as a sister. He pulls you close and receives you into his heart. So when you interact and welcome friends, when you interact and welcome newcomers here, 
do it as Christ welcomed you. You receive them into your heart. You draw them close as friends. Be genuine in your love and concern and care for them. But how often is a church not marked by a, not a gospel culture, but an anti-gospel culture? A culture where we are too busy for everyone else. We just got to get in, have our church, and get out. But we are too different from those people to spend much time with them. We are too annoyed by them and their personality. We are too upset or too selfish to truly welcome them as Christ has welcomed us. And so what do we do instead? We're nice. We're cordial. We ask, how are you doing? Really not expecting a, a, like a real answer, just good, and move on. Where do we just have niceness. But we do not need nice. The world has nice. We need radical welcoming. We need, I want you in my life. And we need, I am so glad that you are here. I am so glad you're in my life. We need genuine care and affection for one another. To truly welcome people. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Some of y'all are in this room, you're like me, you're competitive, and you love, it don't matter what it is, you love to compete about it. Well, here, here's something to compete about. Let's outdo one another in showing honor. Honor to build up, to courage. Honor others that feel, when you do that, it makes them feel like they are on top of the world. When you honor someone, it can change their life. When you go to someone and you say, Brother, my life is better for having you in it. When you go to someone and you say, I would be less of a man without you in my life. When you go to someone and say, I'm so thankful for you in my life. Do you know who wins when we all try to outdo one another and show in honor? We want to fight and compete about who can honor and build up others the best. Do you know what happens? Everyone wins. Everyone wins. And do you know why we don't do this? We don't do it because to honor someone else is to put yourself beneath them. It is to humble yourself. It is to praise and recognize others, and in doing so, putting the spotlight on them and off of you. And in our sinful hearts, man, we, boy, we love the spotlight on us. We love recognition. We love to be honored. You know what is better? And fighting that and wanting the spotlight, it is better to honor others. It sets you free from the feeling that you have to be somebody. It sets you free and it lets you lose your ego and your pride. And it lets you honor others. It frees you up. And when we have a culture where we all welcome and honor one another, a gospel culture, where we quickly forgive one another, quickly show grace to one another, quickly love one another, this will become a place that you never want to leave because when you're here, you feel whole. The gospel fuels conversion, growth, and a gospel culture, finally. The gospel is our foundation and our fuel, but it's also our focus. In the parable of the sower, all the plants that were not able to grow good roots died. But the plants that did grow deep roots, they didn't just grow, they bore fruit. 
Guys, churches get sidetracked all the time. They turn into social clubs. They turn into political activists. They turn into places that serve just felt needs only. They turn into all kinds of different things. We must be a church that has deep roots in the gospel so that we can grow and bear fruit. Bearing fruit meaning that we grow in two ways. We grow deep and wide. Meaning we experience tremendous personal growth. We, we, we experience tremendous maturity in Christ which results in our bearing fruit in, in our own life and serving others and generosity and sharing the gospel and growing our knowledge and on and on. But it also means that we grow wide, meaning that we, because we've grown in Christ, we share Christ with others and they come to Christ. And so the field gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Being rooted in the gospel makes us a healthy church and healthy things grow deep and wide. I am thankful when Christians move into the area or leave a bad church and they come find their home with us. I'm thankful when that happens. But shouldn't it be our desire that most of our growth come from new people who come to Christ? We don't just want to steal sheep. We don't want to be a bigger, a bitter, a big, a bitter bigger and better show that people come here because it's cooler. We want people to come because they find a hope they never had before. That's our mission. Our mission is to see the gospel grow in our own lives and in the lives of others. The gospel keeps us focused because it alone is the message that can change us and change our families, our neighborhoods, and our cities. The gospel must be proclaimed, understood, and practiced. And when it is, we will grow and new people will come to believe. The gospel keeps us focused. As we as a church deliberate and decide and think about, okay, what are we going to do? What programs are we going to have? What events are we going to have? What are we going to do? When we are rooted in the gospel, it keeps us focused to say, hey, this might be a good thing, but it doesn't actually help us achieve our mission. Are we just going to get bogged down with a million programs and a million events? Or are we going to be strategic, choose the right programs, the right events, the right strategies to see the gospel grow? See, when we're rooted in the gospel, our main concern in everything we do will be, how does this serve the advancement of the gospel in our lives and the lives of those who have not yet believed? Church, let's be rooted in the gospel so that our foundation, our fuel, and our focus will be set right. Because when we do that, I believe we will be well on our way to making Jesus essential. Right. Father, we... We come to you this morning knowing that there are men and women in this room right now who have not believed this gospel that we've talked about. That there are men and women in this room who have maybe been religious, maybe have gone to church, men and women who may believe in God, but deep down there are men and women in this church, maybe kids in this church right now listening to this who have not bowed their knees and made Jesus their king. And if that's you this morning, God, would you give them the courage and the strength to come talk with me? I may share with them how they can make Jesus their king. Father, would you, for the rest of us who have, who have trusted in Christ, would you make the gospel our foundation, our fuel, our focus? Would you help us to be so rooted in the gospel that in 100 years, Fellowship Baptist Church will be a giant lighthouse continuing to be faithful to its mission to share the gospel with a broken world? Would you help us be rooted in the gospel so that no matter what cultural winds change, we'll never change with them? Would you help us be rooted in the gospel 
so that we will never be tempted to be legalists and we will never be tempted to take sin lightly. Would you help us to be unified around the gospel? Father, would you let the gospel permeate our lives and change and transform our church? I love you. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said, stand together, church.